Johannes Messer, welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. I'm your host, Dr. George Teleforis, and on today's episode, we're talking to Marianne Diamond, General Manager of Community Linkages and Engagement at the NDIS. Welcome, Marianne, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, George. Good to talk to you. I'm really excited to be able to chat to you. Um, you and I work side by side on getting the NDI started a long time ago, didn't we? We and many other people, George. So many people. It was a, it was a, a good fight. Um, and now you're working at the agency. Um, can you tell us about what was it like to work at the NBA? Uh, look, it's exciting. It's um, change. You know, it's it's wonderful to work at a place where everyone's there because they want to put in and be part of a huge social reform. So I've not worked anywhere where that mission or people are so committed to the mission of the organisation. It's been challenging with the speed of the introduction of the NDIS. And it is a whole different way of doing things for people with disabilities, for providers and for government. So, um, yeah, that's kind of a short summary of working there. And tell us about your role. My role at the NDIS is um, General Manager Stakeholder Engagement. So it kind of has a couple of components. One is working with the disability community, engaging um, with it, talking to it, learning from the sector. But at the same time, working across the agency, because there's a whole lot of stakeholders in the NDIS, from government to the media to um, providers and so on, and making and ensuring that we as an agency engage with our different stakeholders, you know, respectfully using good principles of engagement. So kind of, you know, helping us talk to whoever our stakeholders is and learning from them as well as sharing with them. Yeah, because one of the key challenges is for people to understand what the NDIS is all about. I mean, that's what we uh, try to do here at the Summer Foundation, just to help people to understand the potential of the scheme. And I guess that's a big part of your role, that that people understand what's possible. That's right. And I think... um Think of people with disabilities ourselves and all our colleagues, brothers and sisters with disability, you know, have lived a particular way, received services from service providers, often told what we can have and what we can't have. And now we're saying to people, you know, the the choice and control is in your hands. You, you, You can set your goals. Now, it's not easy for people to just suddenly change the way they think and operate. And it's not simple for providers of supports and services to suddenly be ready to list, you know, to only um, hear from and only provide services that people want. So the whole world is changing. And it, I think it's fair to say it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. It sure does. And we've, we've had um, almost uh, three years of the rollout um, and that followed the um, the the years where um, the trials were operating. So now that we're further down the line and we're nearly at full scheme, what what 
be used as reflectively on it. What well, what's been the best and, and the worst things about the rollout so far? I guess um, if I summarise it, there's a, a large or a lot more money being put into disability supports and services. I think that, you know, some terrific things are that at the moment more than 250,000 people are receiving services through NDIS plans, over 11,000 children coming through on the early childhood um, gateway. You know, no more than 19,000 providers of supports and services are registered with the NDIA, and one in three people are receiving services for the very first time in their life. So they're all pretty big numbers and pretty, uh, in, you know, great outcomes, but they haven't come without some challenges. And yeah. I think it's fair to say that for those who their experience hasn't been so positive um, in getting into the NDIS, that has been very difficult. And I think the speed at which we're introducing the scheme is one of the factors that probably contributes to that. There wasn't a workforce of planners sitting out in Australia doing something similar. So we've had to bring in the workforce. This is within the NDIA. And a lot of work, um, uh, it took a while, I think it'd be fair to say, to get, you know, that onboarding training um, of those, that workforce up and running. You know, bringing on our partners in the community, you know, some have been, there's been a bit of variance, but I think we're addressing some of them now. But for for some, that's been a really big challenge as we introduce this world uh, first, you know, revolution to disability services here in Australia. Revolution, I like that term. Let's, um, let's remember that. Um, and, and yeah, you're right. It's, it's been a huge challenge. Um, I was recently looking at the quarterly report and I saw that um, 84% of uh, uh, people are either, uh, well, they were happy with, with the scheme. So, you know, that's, that's pretty good. But then that's the, the 16% left who, who um, are unhappy or not, not, not um, getting necessarily what they hope for. Um, and I want to talk a bit about some of the issues that they've been facing um, and 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 some of those uh, issues um, um, relate to the speed and the, the lack of consistency um, and, and those things. But can we start with the issue of young people in residential aged care? We, we know that there was a recent announcement uh, by the government. What's the NDIS? doing to get young people out of aged care and stop them from going in? So young people in aged care, um, we know they're there when that's not the most appropriate place. I think there's around 6,000 young people under the age of 65 currently in aged care. Um, I think the um, governments, not just the NDIS, recognise this as, as, as a problem. And last week... Um, and on the 22nd of March, made an announcement which um, articulated an action plan to um, uh, assist people get out of aged care if that's what they choose as one of their goals to ensure that the um, people in aged care get the services they require to meet the needs of their disability. 
And I know one of the goals of the action plan is by 2025 to halve the number of young people with disability um, in aged care, which we hope it would be greater than that, but certainly an effort to ensure that um, people can choose to live where they um, would like to and whom they would like to live with. And as you know, George, these are all connected with things. Is there enough accommodation, um, accessible accommodation around um, in in the community for people to live in? Are people getting the supports in the community they need to um, to live the life they choose? And our complex pathway, recognising that some participants um, on the scheme have very complex situations and complex lives, so that they need extra support in order to get those services they need. And we have a dedicated or are working to build a dedicated team to support these people who have good experience in government services, allied health and um, other support. So I think all of those things look promising for changing, as you say, those who are there and stopping people go in. But there's quite a bit of work to do and across all governments. And we want people listening to know that if they're in aged care now, they don't have to wait until 2023 or 25. They have a right to, to leave now, so they should be um, getting um, in touch with the NDIS so that they can start the process of leaving. That's correct. So let's uh, talk a bit about the, the interfaces between the NDIS and other systems. We know that a lot of people fall through the caps, for example, um, within the health system. Um, we also know that um, there's a need to make sure that um, people get the support that they need, even if their supports might cross from one system to the other. What, what's the NDIS doing to uh, make sure that people don't fall through these caps? So the role of the NDIS is to work with other um, government services, as you say, health, education, justice and so on, to ensure that people with disabilities get the supports they need um, across all of those different areas. So the... Um, the Council of Australian Governments or the Disability Rule Form Council, that's all governments, state, uh, state um, territory and Commonwealth working together to address this problem and um, ensure people get what they need. And I think it, it's fair to say for the person with disabilities just to get the service and governments to work together behind the scenes to, to work through the issues of who pays for what. Because for a person with disability, it doesn't matter who's paying for it. You just need your services when you need them. So the, the NDIS working with all governments um, is addressing this issue and particularly um, looking at, um, you know, the, the supports people need when they need them and governments working behind the scenes to sort out the issues around payment and cost. Absolutely, because if I end up in hospital, I don't need my disability at the door, I need my, my services to continue. So it's vital that the NDIS um, and, and the other systems work it out um, between themselves in terms of who pays for it. All right, let's, let, let's talk about workforce. Um, I'm hearing that uh, there are some real issues with the number and availability of services, particularly in regional and rural areas. 
what's the NBS doing to uh, address the workforce shortages that are emerging? So as you know, George, from the beginning of um, the establishment of the NDIS, um, government had committed to more money being available for persons with disabilities and services available to people with disabilities. And it was also recognised that the workforce would have to hugely increase, like double, in order to meet the demand for people to get the services and supports they need and get them when they need them and where they need them. So um, the NDIS is not a deliverer of service. We're uh, a steward of the um, the um, work being done in this space. So some of the things that we are doing is we recognise that particularly in thin markets and rural and remote where there's not many people but particular specialist services might be required, how we can address them, working with um, different jurisdictions to trial or get a better understanding of what works and what works well so that we can share. We've got an industry reference group that meets and that's made up of participants, of some providers, of industry bodies to try and work on some of these issues. So there's a number of things happening um, that can only um, assist. But the other one we need to be mindful of, and I think you'd appreciate this, George, is that we need all the universities and training institutions to um, uh, put people through their different courses because as we, people with disabilities, we want to ensure that those delivering our services have the right skills and experience and attitudes that um, means that they deliver a quality services, service to us irrespective of where we live. Yeah, that's right. And I think that I'm more important than, than skills and experience is that, that the attitude word that you mentioned, people can learn uh, skills that often attitudes are harder to change. I think that's correct. Uh, as you know, we have a very vibrant online community um, in a Facebook group called the NBIS Grassroots. Um, I told them that I'd be speaking to you and they um, sent me some questions. Uh, quite a lot of them actually, more than I have time to go through today. So um, the first one is about respite and that question was how will informal supports be sustainable without respite? So George, I think I'd start with saying that respite is something that exists for people who require it and um, it might sometimes be referred to in a different name, but we need to think about the participant. So does the participant have in their plans um, the means to ensure that they can um, participate in the community? They might have short-term accommodation requirements. They might have individual plans that allows them to um, do things outside the home or, or so on which results in the family and carers having some respite. So I think it's about how we talk about it. So it's about does the participant have the right um, things in their plan to allow them to do all these things, which result in the carer and family having some respite. Yeah, you're right. And it's not necessarily the word respite that people will see in that plan, um, but people need to uh, obviously uh, 
ask for uh, what they need um, to keep supporting um, their family members and the NDIS needs to fund uh, what's reasonable and obviously depending on the age or on the severity of the um, impairment, those needs might, might, uh, might vary. That's correct. So I want to ask about the iPad, <laughs> the famous iPad. Um, the question is, why doesn't the NDIS fund an iPad if it's the most cost-effective communication device for a person with a communication impairment? So I guess what I would say is that the NDIS um, provides funding for reasonable and necessary um, supports for people. Um, in general, it doesn't su provide supports that are everyday um, purchases or things that anyone in the community uses, like an iPhone, iPad and so on. However, it does recognise and fund any apps or programs for such devices that makes them accessible for a person with disability. So in saying that, though, there are, has been situations or are situations where a tablet or so on uh, with the particular apps might be a standalone um, communication tool for someone with particular disabilities, and they, they have been... Um, from time to time funded. So I would probably say to that question, not as a general rule, the apps and programs that are used on these devices would be funded depending on your disability and what your needs are, but there is situations where they might be funded because of the particular communication or disability communication issues. Excellent. So what you basically said for us is that it's not about never fund yet, it depends on the circumstances and the, the need of the person. That's right. Okay, I want to ask now about um, uh, group homes. Um, there was a question that asked, um, what is the NDI doing to ensure that people are not being forced into group homes? So I think, you know, um, um, you know, choice and control is another big part of the NDIS and um, people should be able to and live who, where they choose and who they choose to live with. Um, I think some of this might be a bit historic where there was group homes and people felt that they didn't have many options but to live there. And the other, of course, big issue is, is there sufficient stock of accessible housing for people to um, live in. So I would say is that no one should be, no one that I would expect should be um, told they need to live in a group home. We're, we're doing a lot of work with the um, government, with government and the disability community and um, so on with the establishment of a um, specialist disability accommodation reference group, which brings together participants, sector providers, finance bodies, um, housing, you know, um, representatives to kind of like address this issue of sufficient supply of, of accessible housing. Um, we've also now... 
um, ensure that people who need a specialist disability accommodation in upfront in their plans that is now available and so that people can go and, and, and look around and find if there's something that they can live with. All of these are really important elements to ensure that, you know, group home is group home housing is not the default. And I think it's a really important thing as we move forward and, and we build a market and we build accommodation that's accessible and people feel confident too that they have this choice and control about where they live. I think that's excellent that you said that. And I think that if people are being told that they have to live in a group home and they don't want to, then they should definitely ask for that to be looked at and reviewed. Most definitely. The other question, um, the final one, is about inconsistency in plans. What's the NDI doing to make sure that people have consistency in the planning and the planners so that the decisions that are made are fair across the country? I think it's a good question, George. And um, as I mentioned at the start of the conversation, um, with the speed at which the NDIS has been introduced across Australia, where there's been, you know, the workforce of planners, local area coordinators and so on, um, had to be built and we didn't have a whole lot of people in Australia working as planners and they could just come and apply for a job at the NDIS. That that workforce had to be built and grown and continues to be. Um, we've done a lot of work in the NDIA to develop training when people join, so training um, uh, for planners and LACs much more extensively than we had. We've been working with the um, Disability Advocacy um, Network of Australia, DANA, to develop some resources and tools for planners and LAC, and they um, are to be undertaken by all um, on the social model of disability, on um, a human rights framework, just to help some of those conversations be actually conducted in that human rights approach. And the, you know, and understanding disabilities, you know, the um, all staff in the NDIA must do compulsory e-learning on um, disability rights, which I think is a really positive step and the take-up has been very, very good. So I think that um, that's part of it. Um, and also the other work, we've done a lot of work in the pathways work. That means the pathways from people first approaching the agency to when to getting a plan, implementing their plan and plan review on, on finding out what works and what works well. We've done a couple of pilots, one we did in Victoria last year that's now being rolled out nationally. And that is default planning meetings are face-to-face that we have a point of contact through our LAC or planner that you can, you know, talk to or go back to. Um, and we're finding as the result of people going right. through that process, the number of plan reviews being requested has dropped um, in those ones. And, you know, so, so some of those changes in the pathways for people that their experience have made a difference and also the recognition that a standard pathway isn't the right for right way for everyone. Some people, as we talked about before, have more complex situations. Some people um, might 
be um, needing to go through a different pathway because they have psychosocial disability or they might be children with hearing hearing impairments. So sometimes, depending on a whole lot of circumstances, it's been recognised that people need to go to a particular pathway and then they work with experienced, trained people in that speciality to ensure they get the best um, plans they can. And our whole review, plan review team has now been centralised. It used to be done out in the regions and so there was variation, I suppose, for people just because of the nature of how that was done. Um, we've got a centralised team now who are doing that and I think you'll find a lot more consistency as a result of that. I think that's fantastic because we want people to uh, have uh, a consistent and reliable um, NBI regardless of where they happen to live. Um, and that's why we advocated for the NBIS because we wanted fairness across, across the country. That's correct, George, and also the uh, the portability of the NDIS so that, you know, if I'm born in Melbourne and currently get my services in Melbourne, if I, for whatever reason, decide I want to go and live in WA or Queensland, you know, that I, I take those supports uh, and package with me rather than go to the bottom of a queue and wait for my turn in a new jurisdiction. Absolutely. Look, I'd like to end on a positive note. I want to I wanna ask you... Um, when we're done with the rollout and uh, we're full steam and all these uh, implementation problems have been ironed out, can you describe for us what would the NBAs look like for you in your mind? Okay, I think, you know, um, the 460,000 people with disability estimated to um, be eligible and will re will be receiving a, a plan and um, implementing their plan, I think is pretty exciting. I think the fact that one in three people we're experiencing at the moment um, are receiving services for the very first time is also exciting. Um, that people um, are benefiting from our information linkages and capacity building part of the scheme. So it's not those who receive packages, but another big part of the scheme is, is that work. So for people who have a disability but are not getting packages, they will benefit from the work that's being done through that side of the NDIS for, because of a more inclusive community. I would see that governments... Um, and, and interfacing services or services other than the NDIS are all working together and that it's pretty transparent or it's not known by us as people with disabilities when we receive services who, who, who pays for it or who is delivering it, but it's there and available to us. And so all of those things are pretty exciting and I think we, we will have got through the issues of, you know, establishing, um, setting up and scaling up such a big program that it will be um, consistent across the country in what you can expect and what you receive. And I think, George, just kind of to end on, I think it's a really important thing to note that for some people who were involved in the trial sites in Barwon and um, Hunter, I think, back in 2013 to 2016, many of them now are receiving fourth or even fifth plans. And what our data tells us in their first year or maybe even two, they often 
just or often receive the same services from the same service providers that they had already received for years. But by the time people got to their third and beyond um, plan, they had the confidence, they had the information, they had talked to people, heard about what else is available and had made significant changes in what they received and who they received it from. So I think that tells me that, you know, it takes a while um, for people to have that confidence, knowledge and um, and that the market responds to what people want, not just what they've traditionally provided. Absolutely. And I know that people are doing some great things through self-managing their funding and, you know, often that's where innovation and and doing things differently often often comes about. That's right, and I think self-management is a great example of the choice and control at its great at, at its height. Where you know, not just are we choosing and controlling what types of services we get and who from, but we're managing. Um, we're confident enough to manage every aspect of of our plans. So I think that's pretty exciting too. Thanks, Marianne. Um, as we uh, say farewell. Are there any final words that you'd like to say to our listeners? Okay, well, other than it's been terrific talking to you, George, as usual, and, um, yeah, I I think there's uh, been lots of successes as we've rolled out a huge change in disability supports for all of us as people with disabilities, for those who provide our services, but we've still got a lot of challenges ahead and the NDIS is is taking them... um, on and working with the community to ensure that what we do is um, a le- you know is demonstration of a leading scheme that we can all as people with disability have confidence in and be proud of. Absolutely, and and one day hopefully we'll have Marianne Diamond, the CEO of the NDIA. I don't think so, but thank you, George. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Marianne. Thanks for your time. No problem. Bye, George. Bye. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. Check out our website where you can download our transcripts, previous episodes, and the latest info on the NBIS. Sadly, this has been our final podcast in the third series. Keep your eyes on our Facebook page for our next series. Until then, I'm Dr. George, and stay well and reasonable.